Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Hello, everybody. Good, thanks. Good, good. Okay, so as usual, we will start with the news. Uh, Jatinda, do you want to go first this week? Cool. So my news story is about a company, well, a group called Elliott Management, who are an investor group of Twitter, They've been demanding that Jack Dowsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, resign because the social network company is currently underperforming. So apparently, Elliott Management don't like the laissez-faire attitude, uh, well, style of Dowsey, and, and nor do they like the fact that he's also the CEO of a company called Square, which is a fintech firm. So they made these demands a while back, but this week, Elliott Management have dropped those demands because in a board meeting, they instead agree, agreed that Dowsey would work towards some tougher growth targets instead. So the interesting part is that I looked into this fintech firm that Dowsey is also the CEO of, and it is worth $1.7 billion. So it's quite a big firm that is doing some significant business. And comparing that to Twitter, who currently is valued at 6.8 billion US dollars, I thought that was um, quite impressive that he's doing both of those jobs at the same time. <laughs> Probably worth a few, Bob, isn't he? Yeah, I should think so. <laughs> Got one hell of a prenup. <laughs> <laughs> what do they want to get rid of him for? Because of his laissez-faire. Seems to be working, though, doesn't it? His laissez-faire style. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the, the company's underperforming. Which one? Uh, Twitter, apparently. Oh, right. Okay. 6.8 billion. It's not enough. No. Yeah, even at six point billion. And then they don't like the fact that his commitment is across two companies. Wow. I mean, yeah, I can't. I guess I can kind of see it because you can imagine if you are a one point whatever it is billion company and your CEO is off moonlighting. Yeah. Doing another seven billion one or whatever it is. Then, exactly. <laughs> then uh, you're going to be like, well, come on, mate. You know. I just have Uber. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Will, did you want to go next with yours? Yeah, sure. Mine's the story of profit. So at bbc.co.uk, there's an article about Hornby. Hornby, no less. I wonder if you two have ever heard of Hornby. Yeah, I've heard of them. The model railway people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had a massive Hornby set. That's how cool I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm as cool as you because I had one as well, which is what drew me to the article. <laughs> <laughs> says something about the career that we've gone into that we both <laughs> spent our time dicking about with model trains awesome. so i didn't have one i just want to put that on record yeah but that's because you're the cool <laughs> business change man with the wraparound yeah, yeah. shades just give it a rest yeah. that's why we got you <laughs> hornby has been making a loss for years and years and it's just returned to profit a profit of two two hundred thousand pounds no less <laughs> from wow. a loss from a loss of two and a half million last year and probably every year before they so yeah, so for all those that aren't a kid in a man's body, Hornby is a, a UK company that sells toys for kids and big kids alike, namely train sets. But they also acquired a number of other things. So like Skelestrix, which is a slot racing game, slot car racing game. Airfix, which is plastic modeling kit. Basically all the toys that I played with as a kid thousand years ago and still maybe play with it. Maybe I play with them still today. In fact, my dad finally gave up trying to educate me in the world of arts and buying Christmas and birthday presents of visiting galleries and books on Millet, etc. And instead bought me a Scholastric set when I was 40, <laughs> which, was, which was my best present I'd ever had for him. Basically. I was going to say, that sounds perfectly suited to your mental age, if nothing else. 
just as a comparison, Apple reported fourth quarter, that's quarter, not yearly, fourth quarter 2020 results of 12.7 billion profit on a 64.7 billion revenue. So not bad. Shows the difference. So <laughs> got to get that Apple angle in there each week. Double O gauge. Good old double O gauge Hornby. I remember all that. Double O gauge, yeah. Yeah, fun. I, I think it's great stuff. Anywho, so my news story is also about profits, believe it or not. So yeah, coincidence. But yeah, Nintendo. So they have just uh, reported their their profits for this year, I think. Yeah, for 2020. And they revised their financial forecast for the year as they've sold millions more consoles than expected. Their profits are up 200% almost certainly as a result of COVID. So people are buying a lot of Nintendo Switches. I actually bought one the other day because uh-huh. when your wife's breastfeeding at 3 a.m., it's a very good way to stay awake. <laughs> so I've been <laughs> sat next to her in bed playing that to try and keep myself from falling asleep to make sure she doesn't fall asleep. But yeah, a really good console. I recommend it. I'll do a recommendation on it once I've had it for a bit longer. But yeah, amazing. Absolutely incredible. The sales numbers that they report are just huge. Even stuff that's been out for a long time, like Breath of the Wild, the incredible Zelda game that came out in 2017, I think it was, has sold another two or three million units this year. So uh, 2.3 million, excuse me. So it's remarkable. It's a remarkable story, really, of a company that a while ago were not looking so hot and then have had a string of big successes with consoles that by any sane person's imagining should have failed, to be honest, waggling around remotes and God knows what else. But uh, yeah, they've turned it around. So Are the same same increasing profits on the Microsoft? and Sony consoles, do you know? Well, I think it's probably unfair to compare them at the moment because they are literally days away from launching the Xbox uh, One X and the, I think it's X, and the PlayStation 5. So I think that's a great question, but it's probably one to ask in a month or so. Nintendo are interesting, aren't they? Because they've got, they appeal to people that aren't console geeks. Do you know what I mean? They, They appeal to a sort of, wider audience which maybe is why people turn to them what's interesting is that most people who have consoles have their main console which they think of as their main console so their playstation or their xbox and they're quite tribal about those and a nintendo switch Mm. or or a Mm. wii or whatever the current I've, i've always done this i've always had the nintendo console as well as the main console that I think of as my main one. And I've done the same thing again in this generation. And they just go their own way. The design is just bonkers uh, of the Switch, but it's fascinating. It's a, it's a brilliant bit of kit and engineering. Because it's sort of thing when you've had your dinner party, instead of throwing the keys in the bowl, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You, you, <laughs> you and I go to very different you get, parties. <laughs> you, you get round the Nintendo Wii, don't you? Yeah. They're much more engaging with people that aren't, tech savvy if you see what I mean and they automatically you get people just joining in but also I think that now having become a dad and having a two-year-old as well I mean I can't actually play most of my PlayStation 4 games in front of my son Hmm. because they're like Kratos ripping a werewolf in half or something yeah it's not not really appropriate whereas Super Mario Galaxy is one of the best games ever made one of the most spectacularly well-designed games ever made and it's also completely kid-friendly so it it has that cross-generation appeal and i don't mean console generations i mean generations of humans Um, and they build in features such as a mode that is basically designed so that a kid can help their dad while they're playing if they're not old enough to by swiping their finger around to pick up little items and stuff 
Yeah. I think that's one of their kind of um, their target markets is more in the children's section than what I'd say PlayStation is as well. Like I've still got my Super Nintendo from I don't know how old, and I still play it. <laughs> I have, yeah. yeah, Super Bomber Man. Yeah, that that that's classic. Yeah. Stone Cold Classic. Anyway, on that note, let's move on to the third in our ethics series. So this is we're talking about whether or not it's possible, even possible, to be good in the modern world. So, Will, do you want to take us through the topic for this week? Yep, sure. So is it, yeah, as you say, is it possible to be good in the modern world or is hypocrisy unavoidable? So I remember Julian and I were sitting in a high street fast food sushi chain restaurant that I won't mention, beginning with it, near one of, uh, near one of our client offices when the extent, extinction, not extension. The extension rebellion? Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, they were protesting. Do you remember this? And blocking the street outside, as well as many other streets in London. And we were commenting how important climate change was and how also smelly and dirty all the protesters looked. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think you were commenting about <laughs> I, I'd just like to point out, for, for anyone listening, I do not endorse this opinion. <laughs> I, know, I know how they were doing their course any favours, looking and smelling <laughs> like they did. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it was also, wasn't it? I think my point was I totally agree with the with the message, but not the method. Yeah. I think that's what yeah. I said at the time. Then, of course, uh, one of them inevitably sat next to us, <laughs> and he he ordered some sushi, all ironically for him, individually wrapped in plastic. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you eat at one of one of these restaurants, you literally throw away more rubbish than food that you consume. But this, so this guy is so moved by climate change that he actually makes himself smelly and sits in London Road, in London Junction for days on end, yet then goes into a fast food sushi restaurant and unwraps all the plastic from his mercury and microbead infested sushi <laughs> to eat and then throws it all away. And you're thinking, hypocrite, right? But is it his fault? And is it impossible not to be one in this day and age? So you go onto said company's website and you look at their sustainability messes and you try and separate fact from marketing bullshit. What of their products is good for the environment and what of their products is damaging? And it's incredibly hard to do that separation. And the onus is on you, right? The consumer, not on the company making or selling the product. It's on you to try and find that distinction of what product is the most benefit or should I say the least harm to the environment. And as an example, this particular company, and I am, I'm not... I, I'm using this particular company, but it's across the board. They use wooden cutlery that's replaced the 30 tonnes of plastic cutlery that they use. So, so that sounds good. Another example, though, was that they've removed plastic wrapper around one of their grocery rice noodle nests, which is incredibly specific. And what does grocery mean over just normal rice noodle nest? You know what I mean? And why are they not removing plastic wrapper off all their products, just this particular one line? So that sounds a bit crappy. And why do we have, as consumers, have to do that checking? Can you actually eat something, buy something, do something without causing some kind of damage to the planet? Is it, is it actually possible? Because when I'm preaching to someone, as, as inevitably I do, <laughs> as inevitably I do a lot. <laughs> you? No. <laughs> about how I don't pump pollutants and poisons into the air because I drive an electric car, have I conveniently forgotten the damage done in the mining of the rare earth metals for the batteries in countries that persecute their population and the energy to manufacture that car because it's new, that car is new, 
and we haven't reached the benefits of economy of scale that you do get in, in other cars that have been around for a long time. And then what happens to all those bits when I finish with it? Again, I've got good intentions, but is it impossible to not be a hypocrite? It's bloody hard work. And to be good, you're always at risk of being criticised by all the things that are wrong, even though you've got the best intentions. People will then say, like I've just given you on the example, well, they're mining these rare earth, these rare earth materials in countries that persecute their people. Does that stop me? Should that stop me buying that electric car? So what does being good in the world of oil mean and who should who defines it? Is there a perfect product out there that does no damage to the planet or in fact benefits the planet? And if there is, what is it? And how do they do that? I'm not sure there is anything like that. If we can all measure our activity to this perfect product or this perfect baseline, or we can measure our activity or the products in terms of damage points. Do you know what I mean? Something easier, mm. something easy, like a color code that you get when you eat food, you know, in terms of fat content and calorie content. There's a kind of damage point that you're doing to the environment. So you can then have the required information to make an informed choice rather than having to wade through information on a website and separate fact from bullshit. How can we link the message to something that proves their message? Maybe. Maybe the solution lies in the supply chain. I mean, does anyone want to step in here? Because I can carry on waxing their recovery. <laughs> well, there's, there's, just, there's one thing I'd like to just pick up quickly, which is this is not an episode specifically on ecologically friendly stuff. It's about the ethics of what we're doing. But I think it's a very good case study and a very interesting kind of area to talk around, but in terms of the ethics. So I think from a, an ethical point of view, it's, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because there are so many complexities to each of these scenarios you go to the supermarket and you buy a cucumber wrapped in plastic versus a cucumber in a paper bag then great good for you you you, you feel like you're ethical right but the thing is in order to get because they're a very perishable item in order to get that cucumber in a good state to the shelves they have to waste way many way more than they would if they just wrapped them all in plastic so which is the more ethical way to do it mm. and typically as we said in the last episode a lot of this does tend to come back to ecological questions and what's what's best for the planet and what's the greenest thing to do but that's kind of not the only aspect to being good i think i think there's there's a lot there's a lot of other ethical stuff in there about the way that people are treated and and other bits and pieces as well as just the ecological impact so it's, it's probably worth saying that there's four theories that we've come across during the research around ethics of, of almost mindsets to take on board when trying to understand that chain of, of being ethical when making certain decisions whether they're to go out and eat at a certain establishment or where it's how you travel or which kind of car you have. And those are the utilitarian theory, which is concerned with maximizing benefits and minimizing harm. So trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number. There's the virtue-based theory where individuals possess certain qualities that define and guide appropriate behavior. So that way the decision maker is doing the right thing in the right place at the right time in the right way. The right space theory, which is where everyone who's entitled to certain rights and individuals become moral agents for those rights. So I should only act in a way in which I would be happy if everyone in that situation acts in the same way. And then finally, there's the justice based theory. So this is about 
Are processes by which decisions are made and the outcomes of those decisions equitable, fair and impartial? So it's probably a combination of those or you pick one based upon which is the most one that you align to in your thinking or how you can apply that in your lifestyle, I guess. I guess, yeah, those are quite rigid I guess, yeah. They split it down particular lines, Mm -hmm. but there are elements of each, I suppose, that are applicable to assessing situations. I guess is the first question that we need to look at. How do you assess whether the balance is more on the side of good or bad? So, for example, with Will's electric car, made some excellent points about that. But how did you, in the end, make the assessment, Will, that it was for the greater good and it it was more ethical to have an electric car than it was to just buy an internal combustion engine standard car? What was the... What was the theory or the thinking? I didn't. There was no. There was no theory or thinking. Well, the, well, my. The, but you didn't do it for no reason. You didn't just randomly go out and have a completely, you know, brain impulse and just buy one for the sake of it. You did it because you didn't want to pump poisons into the atmosphere, right? Yeah. I mean, what I mean is, I didn't go through all the permutations of what an electric car is good at and what an electric car is bad at from an ethics point of view. Mm. And and let's pick up. Let's pick up. There's a number of things, you know, where so. Where I'm thinking of the, the the presiding thought was, and I think it was tied into the general press and the general movement around carbon emissions into the air, which is an interesting point as well. You looked at electric car and you thought, okay, this does not emit carbon into CO2 into the into the atmosphere as well as all the other crap that comes out uh, out of uh, internal combustion engines, and that's your presiding thought. Then you look at the aesthetics of the car and, and the, the, the stats on the car and things like that, that you would on a normal car. Do you know what I mean? They're the presiding thoughts that I had when I bought the car. This was pretty cutting edge in terms of tech at the time that I bought it. And tech is also something that I consider in a car as well. So there are a number of different criteria. Some you would apply to a normal traditional internal combustion engine type of car. And some are, yet yeah, there's benefits I'm seeing to the environment. But what you're not what I didn't do is take it to the point where I'm assessing the complete supply chain of that car. And then at the end of the life of that car, I'm thinking, well, a lot of these components are pretty cutting edge. A lot are intertwined and tightly coupled with, with one another, the, the components that work together. How is that going to be unpicked and recycled or reused at the end of this particular life? There was always that doubt with batteries anyway, wasn't there, in terms of that? But how is that? And I sort of conveniently, accidentally on purpose, forgot about those kind of things. Now, I don't think that makes me bad. And I think I'm do- I was trying to do the right things. But it certainly makes me a hypocrite when I talk to people about the, de- the good I'm doing because I bought an electric car. Because electric car is good in certain ways, but in other ways... It's really bad. And I think there's a real trap there, which I've seen people fall into many times when it comes to things like electric cars, particularly plug-in hybrids and things like that, or the ones that generate power with a combustion engine that drives a generator effectively and then powers the wheels. I think people can, 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 I'm not meaning to sort of insult anybody, but I think some people can go and buy one of those and then go, right, dumb a bit, I'm awesome. That's it. Mm. There's... This is unequivocally a great thing that I've done and aren't I brilliant and let me slap it all over Instagram or whatever it might be. But actually, it's a far more nuanced picture. And I think a lot of the time there's a danger of virtue signaling and a danger of getting caught up in the hype. And actually, it's very, very difficult sometimes to to actually really, truly be 100% ethical in anything. I think another point that I wanted to pick up from something Will said right at the beginning about looking at companies and how they do things and working out whether they're a company you should deal with is that 
even if you take the time to do that, it's also very tricky if the company that you are investigating are not being ethical in the way that they present the information you're looking at. So the example I'm thinking of is I know somebody who worked for, <clears throat> wait for it, our very favorite company, Apple, <laughs> and uh, went to the Infinite Loop, which is their headquarters in Cupertino in California, the new one they've just built. And Apple are a company who are big on green stuff and, and the ethics around that and everything else and put a load of great statements on their website. And one of the first things you see when you walk into any of the kitchen areas or canteens there is an unlimited supply of free plastic cups. And you can pick up as many as you want in a day and you can chuck them all in the bin at the end of the day if that's what you want to do and there's no limit on it there's no sort of forcing people to live the values you can just fill your boots if you're not particularly ethical as an individual or concerned about the planet so it's very difficult because what you read on the website or whatever might not actually be the truth and so even though you've done your level best to try and be as ethical as you possibly can be it's almost like even if you do do that, you're still damned because mm. not everybody is always necessarily telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult. There's sort of big multinational companies have the message they want to give out and they obviously want to show that they're ethically sound. So they'll give out that message, but it'll be mashed up with a lot of marketing hype, won't it? So you need to separate, as we, as I was talking about earlier, separate fact from bullshit. But then it comes down to the supply chains for these large multinational companies. There's an interesting article that the Harvard Business Review did, because I read that obviously all the time, <laughs> in terms of they conducted a study over three supply networks or supply chains with automobile, electronics and pharmaceutical companies. And ultimately, it's the cascade effect that they want. They want to see the supplies, suppliers in each of the chain parting on the ethical and environmental standards that are there with the multinational companies and adhere to it. But it doesn't work. Why would lower tier suppliers bother to adhere? Their products are used across many suppliers. If one ethical and environmental auto manufacturer buys seat foam, for example, which only makes up 5% of their order, why are they going to bother to adhere to it when 95% of people that buy their seat foam don't give a toss about environmental or ethical values? If you're a country with no environmental laws, why bother? Mm. You know no one really cares about lower tier suppliers and you never get that much attention, so why bother? There's never any incentive to comply within the lower tier of those supply chains. And it's the top tier of multinational companies gets hammered when there is, for example, a fire in a sweatshop or raw sewage leaked into a river or oil leaked into the sea, not the private factory or the contractor or the ship owner. And on top of that, most multinational companies don't even know their full supply chain. They have no idea about the lower tier suppliers who are often private companies with no accountability, but ultimately could cause the most damage. I think one of the answers to all of this is about transparency on the supply chain, because ultimately your supply chain is only as strong, as the old phrase goes, as your weakest link. Is there any kind of regulatory body around ethics in a supply chain or how these kind of things come together? Well, I, I don't think there is. I'm not, not on a complete supply chain, it, because the supply chain spans the world. Yeah. As I was talking before, do you know what I mean? You can have a private company you know, that employs a handful of people in a country that doesn't give a toss about environmental laws, you have no visibility or accountability. Why are you going to pay more to be ethically or environmentally sound? I guess what would be the incentives for a group of industries to start regulating their supply chain so that the inception to market 
of any product can be assessed against some kind of criteria. Yeah. Transparency, isn't it, though, is it? Don't you think so? Because if you know yeah. if you know complete transparency of your supply chain, me as a consumer, yeah. and I'm going, okay, they use a particular factory in a particular country that uses slave labor yeah. or child labor, there's no way I'm going to buy that product. I don't think you would. I don't think anyone would. Exactly. Uh, because we don't know about it, we can sort of hide the fact, can't we? We've probably got suspicions. But because it's not in our face, we go, oh, they're probably not. Yeah. You mislead yourself, do you? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You're misleading yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're misleading yourself and you're, you're almost making an excuse for what potentially could be the problem out there. But then is that really not ethical? Because if it's impossible for you as the consumer to find out the depths of that supply chain, which it is in, in a, I'd say, a large majority of cases, is it then unethical for you to buy that product? Because there might be a problem which you can't possibly find out about. I don't think you'd buy anything, would you? You wouldn't buy anything because no one's got transparency of supply chains. And that's where like those four theories come into play where most of the time we use the virtue-based theories that the decision-maker thinks that they're doing the right thing at that point in time and they're going about it in the right way. But then how much are you going to do in terms of scratching the surface to, to use any of the other theories about is it equitable, fair and impartial? As you, as you just said, looking at the chain of anything, it's impossible almost to work out whether you could ever make that judgment. Sorry, just jump in quickly. I think you're right about that because I think the virtue-based system is the one that most people use. But I think the, the way that I would put it is if you are trying to, if you're genuinely serious about trying to be ethical, make sure that the virtue that you're looking for is your own virtue and not the virtue that you think other people will see in you if you make those decisions. So don't go buy an electric car because you want everybody to pat you on the back for doing it. Do it because you genuinely believe that it is the ethical thing to do. I think that for me is a roundabout way of saying you've just got to do your best, which is my conclusion for all of this, really. And that's a combination of virtue-based and utilitarian theory. So that which is the greatest good for the greatest number, I guess, is that you're doing it for, for the masses rather than a pat on the back. Yeah, it's kind of being selfless, I guess. Did you have any concluding thoughts around this one, Will? No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. I'll tell you what, my concluding thought is buy local. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, good that's one, a good actually. One. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Because you know the supply chain, right? It's your local butcher. But how well do you know your local butcher, I guess? <laughs> Well, he lives in, in Yorkshire, so... You're, you're in a little village, aren't you? So, yeah. I'm in a little village, uh, top of a hill. He lives 10 miles away from any habitable settlement, so you kind of have to know everyone where you live, don't you, Will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. go back to the old days, living in small... Well, there is that. There is that, JK, yeah. I mean, there's, not, there's, there's something to be said about local, and ironically, with COVID now, local shops, have, it's boom time for them. You know, our fishmonger, our butchers, it's never, they've never been so busy because people aren't going to the big multinationals in the big cities because there's 50-50 chance they'll make it back. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that technology, and we are a technology podcast at the end of the day, technology has enabled uh, people to be significantly or made it much harder for people to be ethical and made it much easier for people to consume stuff that is not ethically sourced because it isn't locally produced. So the supply chain can be much murkier. The industry with the worst record in terms of transparency of supply chains is the technology industry. Right. That is a good note to end that topic on. It's been a fun little series. So if we move on to recommendations, Will, did you want to go first with yours this week? Yeah, sure. So how to make everything series on YouTube. You can subscribe to this. 
which is basically how do you make something from scratch, which is which is ironically related to what we've just been talking about. Uh, and when I say from scratch, I mean from like core metals and sowing seeds for wheat and for getting some oil for plastic, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. It ties in with, the, yeah, as I said, the supply chains we just talked about in today's podcast. One I want to talk about is to, how to make a product after my own heart, which is the sandwich, uh, a uniquely British invention, like, like, like most things in the world. This is how to make a $1,500 sandwich in six months, which shows the process right from the beginning of planting and growing the vegetables and wheat for the bread, getting, killing, and plucking. Got got to say that right, plucking. Uh, A chicken, um, honey from bees, milking the cow to make the cheese, et cetera. You get the message. Um, Uh, What you do in the Yorkshire Dales is... (laughs) I do a lot of plucking of chickens. It was fascinating. It showed the effort involved in a simple thing like a sandwich with the few components that are involved in that. I mean, think of the complexity in a phone or a car. The end result is actually brilliant in the YouTube. So because someone asked him, what do you think of the sandwich? Uh, and the person that spent six months and $1,500 on it said, well, it's not bad. <laughs> and then he thought a bit, put his head in his hands and said, six months of my life are not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's a really good one. I'm going to go and check that out, I think. Uh, we should definitely put a link to that on Twitter yeah, well uh, and in the show notes as well, if you uh, you ping it to me. Jatinder, did you want to go next with yours? Yeah, so quite similar to uh, Will's suggestion, mine is a TED Talk on how I built a toaster by a designer called Thomas Thwaites. So this guy built a toaster from scratch and basically his, his kind of inspiration for it was he was dismayed to discover that there were 400 different bits of a toaster that he had bought himself that came from 100 different materials. So he tried to narrow it down to plastic, steel, copper and nickel. And when he did finally build his toaster out of those different components, it only lasted five seconds because it caught fire. Yeah, Uh, It's a TED Talk. I recommend it. Ironically... Probably catching fire is still toasting, isn't it? So <laughs> maybe, maybe it's doing the job. I suppose you've got that, haven't you? If you if it all goes wrong and just melts into a big heap, you can just hold the bread over it and it'll still toast it. So technically, he's still won. Yeah. He's still won. Yeah, bit of a plastic tinge to it, but hey. Yeah, cool. So my recommendation is a, an amazing YouTube channel called The Hacksmith. And uh, I'm going to continue the theme of building shit because uh, apparently we're all on the same wavelength. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> um, so this is, the, <laughs> this is the world's first or most realistic lightsaber. So this chap, this mad, mad, mad chap with uh, 13 million subscribers or something, has built or has been trying to build a real lightsaber in the real world for a long time. And obviously the technology to do it doesn't actually exist. But um, what he's done is built this absolutely incredible gas jet based lightsaber, which projects a sort of jet of pure plasma effectively out of the end of it. And then they mix some salts into the blade that burn and give it the color which is genius. It is absolutely remarkable. It's just incredible. They slice through like a steel door with it and all sorts of stuff. It's ludicrously dangerous, like how this guy isn't dead and, and his whole team aren't <laughs> dead. I mean, he's made millions, I'm sure, off, off being sponsored and everything else because this is a huge channel that I only recently discovered. But mm. yeah, the YouTube uh, algorithm threw this up and I was just amazed by by watching him do this and he's done other stuff like building iron man armor with lasers that actually burn things and you know trying to build jetpacks and god knows what else but this this is just incredible is he like an engineer or something or yeah so he well i don't know he's a he's certainly a hobbying engineer but okay. he's got a whole team of people behind him he's a jedi 
<laughs> no. I mean, he's got a whole <laughs> team of, of people who now work with him for this company that he's set up, obviously, to yeah. facilitate okay. this YouTube channel. So it's a typical story of someone who's grown massive. He needs to buy, he needs to make another one and then there needs to be a fight. <laughs> yeah that would be awesome they actually did do that but not with the gas jet one because obviously that has no physical blade for you to clash together but they did one no but you have to cut off a limb or something oh maybe that's maybe not they did one where they i think they had superheated titanium rods to, to look like the blades <laughs> and then they did try and have a fight with those awesome but yeah i mean they're completely mental but it's worth checking out and the reason it's really cool is because YouTube, the actual platform YouTube itself, has only ever commented on two videos. So this is YouTube going and leaving a comment on a video. Mm. And they have only ever commented on this video of this guy's lightsaber and another one that he did of building an Iron Man glove that fired an actual laser that could like melt through walls and stuff. Yeah. And they've got, like, the platform's got something like, you know, 50 billion followers or whatever it is. And the, this guy is the only guy in the world who's ever made a video that, I believe I'm right saying this, that YouTube has actually commented on itself. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. I'm going to put a link to it, but it is mental. It's a crazy thing to do, but it's so cool. Brilliant. Nice. So I think, chaps, that is the show. So just remains for us to say thank you very much to everybody who's listening. If you want to get in touch with the show, you're more than welcome to do so. We'd love to hear from you. We are available on ddkpod at ddklimited.com. So ddkpod, or one word, at ddklimited, or one word, spelled out in full, dot com. We're available on Twitter at ddklimited, and we are available on LinkedIn as Dalton Day Candola. So uh, thanks very much, guys. It's been a lot of fun as usual, and guess we'll catch everyone in two weeks' time. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Sam. Cheers. It's good, that. Good chat.